Thank you, Gary. That's <laughs> um, loud. <laughs> I'm going to do this thing, you know. I can see you or I can see my paper, but I can't see both. So this afternoon, um, we were talking about um, erasure as a way of writing poems, and I told someone I didn't do erasures, but I realized that I have been sort of experimenting with it in my own way, and so I'm going to start with one of those. Um, this is called Inland, and it uh, comes from um, a book called Our Inland Sea by Alfred Lamborn, um, which was written turn of the century. Alfred Lamborn lived in Utah and tried to homestead on an island in the Great Salt Lake. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a total disaster. Um, he tried to plant a vineyard there, and, um, you know, you can imagine what happened. But he did spend a whole winter there basically by himself um, and kept a diary. He was by himself except that he had a crow that kept him company, and there at some point um, guano sifters arrived and came to sift the guano <laughs> and, you know, make it into fertilizer. So it's a very bizarre and beautiful book, and, um, and what I did with it, I had been doing some other work with the Salt Lake, a good friend and collaborator of mine um, who lives out there now, Holly Simonson was doing a, pro a big project involving kind of a collaboration with the lake and putting poems into the lake and taking them out. And so I was kind of involved in, in that um, as well. And I was reading this book and um, I was thinking about the evaporation pools that are all at the southern end of the Great Salt Lake where the water is just in these wide, flat pools and evaporates out so that the salt can be harvested from them. So I think of this poem as sort of, uh, I took the book and I made it into evaporation pools and the poem is the salt, you know, that, that uh, derived from it. So it's more, I guess, evaporation than it is erasure. Inland. And the epigraph comes from the book as well. The question as to whether the land was of a mineral or an agricultural character, so too is the key to my hut. One, our subject is the bitter fragment. However his name attaches to the great fossil body, neither am I a wild beast, black as it really is with a thin scumbling of atmospheric cobalt myself in unbroken ostracism. Two, books and a raven. This one of endless effrontery and sidelong gait. Yet this wild was not sought by me that I might escape the sex. For the raven I have made a door of his own. On the other hand is my easel. Even among the democratic rocks, I turn to my books. Three, it is in its way a perfect thing. Redeeming the waste, the sifters are prompt. It is easier to gather than to create. 
In the wildest meaning, this guano dust is scattered. Four, not through pride shall I be brought to the eating of grass. Skirt my island as often as I will, carrion of some kind has drifted ashore. Being wingless, I cannot pass. Five, a half-circle beach of oolitic sand, clouds of predictive bloom, some pungent and nameless flower. I would have thought that time was truth itself. Six, a piece of rude and sterile, rude and unarranged mass. On a limited scale, it has beetling cliffs. Seven, not yet the monkshood had bloomed, and the transplanted fish had lived and thriven. Soon is superseded the native denizen. Pioneers were the trout in that aforetime tenantless lake. Eight, not of roses do the sifters dream. My eyes ache in the fierce disquiet of time, out noise. Beauty may become so perfect that there is no room left for peace. Today the same as yesterday. Nine, oozing alkali, malevolent and envenomed, that squat, stealthy motion of theirs. Ten, evil is not merely negation. No, evil is not merely negation. With the elemental around me, here, if anywhere, I may test the thought. 11. That mound of elitic sand which stands a mystery. And grief? Here it has been. Here the old bones, the fossils, the remains of an hour I lay on the cliff top. Air and water, too, are filled with the ministers of pain. As for the sifters, they have made some charcoal. The sky seems water, the water sky. Not without weariness are clouds. These reactionary storms, perhaps, after all, my belief was at fault. Tonight we illumined the island with a driftwood fire when the great conoidal hill lay pale. You may sit down. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, Ulitic sand is uh, um, a kind of sand that you just, I think you just find it around the Salt Lake. It's round like pellets rather than flat like crystals, so it has this strange like feeling to it. Um, and it has something to do with the salt. And this is Great Salt Lake. Um, the first part, I'm just going to read the first part of this, which is uh, called North Shore. And it begins um, with Smithson, Robert Smithson's um, Spiral Jetty. Spiral Jetty that Robert Smithson left, his question mark hanging out there in the question that needs to be asked, so huge how an entire city can ignore it 
take the name Salt Lake. So often now I'm searching for a word and I can't find it, have to skirt around, say it another way. Look at any word long enough and you will see it open into a series of faults, a terrain of particles, each containing its own void, Smithson wrote, but also the names of minerals and the minerals themselves do not differ from each other. Salt cuts the feet. It hurts to look into the lake, water glistening, dead, pelicans float up near the oil seep where I return a skull to a pair of wing bones, empty cartridges everywhere, the shorelines mostly used for a shooting range. I collect them, making a nest on driftwood. A series of faults, these shells, each containing its own void. Still, what I want to say with them, the words hatch, don't they? All beak and broken feather, the crystals grow. Um, and this is the last of the Salt Lake poems called Milk. Baby pronghorn carcass splayed toward antelope island, neck twisted, twisted like a loose tooth, like a rag wrung into a teat for the orphaned young. The mother licked just once before she turned to nurse her own grief rising thick as that longing that is both thirst and hunger before they separate and are given names. So now we'll move to this side of the world. Um, I was the poet in residence at the Frost Place in Franconia, New Hampshire in 2007 for the summer. And um, when I arrived in June, there had been huge storms um, in, the, in the spring of that year. And there, um, there's a homestead there where Frost lived, and then there's a lot of land behind it, and there was kind of a woodlot. And these storms had gone through the woodlot and just like ripped up all the trees. There were, you know, tornadoes, strength winds, and the whole place was pretty much of a mess. And then loggers had come in and tried to clean it up, but it really just made it more of a mess. So um, I arrived to this like totally destroyed forest behind the, the house. And um, it had also, there had been a poetry trail that had gone like through the forest. So I kind of came in to a place where the poetry trail had been totally disrupted and um, and it it just sort of shaped my whole summer there and I ended up spending a lot of time out with those down trees and because it was Frost's place um, they started sort of forming a narrative and the trees themselves kind of became figures or characters that had voices and um, it was, uh, I ended up making sort of my own poetry trail out of the dest destruction there. Um, and the figure that was central to this whole little uh, drama 
there was um, a, a tr um, dead tree that had not been visible because of the forest around it, but now that everything was down, it was totally visible. And it was this trunk of a tree that had grown into a granite boulder. And I think at some point it must have been hit by lightning because it had no um, bark on it. And it was just kind of this figure that had you know, two arms stretching up and a, a torso um, and breasts and hips and was clearly a, a woman. Um, and, uh, you know, because everything else was down there, there she was standing there. So she became the hillwife um, for, for this, this scenario. And, and then all the other figures kind of constellated around her. Um, so I'm going to read poems that came out of that experience and mix them with the frost poems that they, that they um, uh, maybe... I don't know, that they're lifted, lifted from in some way, I guess I want to say. So I'm going to start with, with Frost's Hill Wife and, and then move into the other ones. Frost's Hill Wife is um, a long poem of five parts. I'm just going to read the last part called The Impulse. It was too lonely for her there and too wild, and since there were but two of them and no child, and work was little in the house, she was free and followed where he furrowed field or felled tree. She rested on a log and tossed the fresh chips with a song only to herself on her lips. And once when she went to break a bough of black alder, she strayed so far she scarcely heard when he called her and didn't answer, didn't speak or return. She stood, and then she ran and hid in the fern. He never found her, though he looked everywhere, and he asked at her mother's house, was she there? Sudden and swift and light as that, the ties gave, and he learned of finalities besides the grave. So if you take that poem and read it from the bottom, um, skipping every other line, the poem becomes this, Hillwife. Beside the grave, the ties gave. Was she there? Everywhere. In the fern, or return, when he called her of black alder, on her lips, the fresh chips, or felled tree, she was free, and no child, and too wild. And these are two witches. Frost has two witches too, but these are mine. One, I was wearing the blue sweater, the roadside, the roadside for the church with its blue shoulders, it's not withholding, it's all I never knew what hit me. Call this old woman or evening walk. I'm not going out of the blue, the fatal blue sky takes us in. Two. I'm still here, still smoke and I still drink, but oh, I miss them, you know. John, he shot himself and Mary, breast cancer, and she had had a child, you know, a girl. Well, she tracked us down. 
has children of her own. Now, we wouldn't have done that. We'd have let her stay home and keep the baby. Oh, he was sick, I think. I mean, he had something. He wasn't well. He came to say goodbye the night before. Young John, he comes to see me with his boyfriend, wants to know if they invite me to their wedding. Will I come? Oh, he's a handsome boy. Well, he always was. Um, there was one figure that really frightened me there more than any of the others, and it was Frost's old man. This is Frost's old man, an old man's winter night. All out of doors looked darkly in at him through the thin frost, almost in separate stars, that gathers on the pane in empty rooms. What kept his eyes from giving back the gaze was the lamp tilted near them in his hand. What kept him from remembering what it was that brought him to that creaking room was age. He stood with barrels round him at a loss, and having scared the cellar under him and clumping here, he scared it once again in clumping off, and scared the outer night, which has its sounds familiar like the roar of trees and crack of branches, common things, but nothing so like beating on a box. A light he was to no one but himself, where now he sat, concerned with he knew what, a quiet light, and then not even that. He consigned to the moon, such as she was so late arising, to the broken moon as better than the sun in any case for such a charge, his snow upon the roof, his icicles along the wall to keep, and slept. The log that shifted with a jolt once in the stove disturbed him, and he shifted and eased his heavy breathing, but still slept. One aged man, one man, can't keep a house, a farm, a countryside. Or if he can, it's thus he does it of a winter night. Old Man <clears throat> I felt up my daughter on vacations. I tried to finger her under water. Well, I was entitled to the oil, the water glass tucked under one arm, spilled when I bent to pick up mail. I'd forgotten it was full. Sometimes I dreamed about disasters. I don't believe I caused the explosions offshore, the mountain running red. Sundays, the lamb I carved, fed the sons I fathered to protect my holdings, my wife means to stand by me to the last. Girl. Is that it? <laughs> girl, you're not afraid, are you, big girl like you? I was watching their horse mouth hay. He and my father stall in the shadows. I wasn't listening except to the horse's jaw, except when he said that, because earlier, the way he reached for me, yes, I was afraid. 
This is Witness Tree. Frost has a book called Witness Tree, but there's no poem called Witness Tree. Because a forest is storied, when it's brought down, the evidence piles up. Even small tracks like this one, the understory sticks in your throat, the violated, the broken, and who's to tell if the witness tree gets cut off, stump among their limbs in heaps like shelters, only how could these house the living, no way in or out, no way through, except for smoke, irrevocable, the mangled cords on fire. Two thousand and seven was um, Bush was still president, and the um, Abu Ghraib atrocities were just coming to light. So that kind of played into this whole mix of things that was going on. So um, this is called Dogs of War. One dogs, how they keep us chained to terrify the prisoners that they unchained us. How the overstory was twisted by storm winds, that they could uproot us if we strained to break free, to hold our ground. How they didn't, that we just snapped. How our teeth gleam like salt, that we bay. Two, woman warrior, downed girl, Breast removed for bearing arms, child I never was allowed to play with. Three, felled, veteran, boy at heart, dead so long we shouldn't feel this, but the deaf old man is starting up his chainsaw. You who loved me, to stretch my full length. What warmth can I offer you now? Broken match, smoldering. Not to keep. They sent him back to her. The letter came saying, and she could have him. And before she could be sure there was no hidden ill under the formal writing, he was there, living. They gave him back to her alive, how else? They are not known to send the dead, and not disfigured visibly, his face, his hands. She had to look, to look and ask, what is it, dear? And she had given all, and still she had all. They had, they, the lucky. Wasn't she glad now? Everything seemed one, and all the rest for them permissible ease. She had to ask, what was it, dear? Enough, yet not enough. A bullet through and through, high in the breast. Nothing but what good care and medicine and rest, and you a week can cure me of to go again. The same grim giving over to do for them both. She dared no more than ask him with her eyes how it was with him a second trial. And with his eyes he asked her not to ask. They had given him back to her, but not to keep. This 
This is birches. Its top could bear no more. Willfully misunderstand, then come back and begin over. One eye is weeping. Too much I'm weary, and so I dream through air to ground. Too soon he learned to conquer. Over and over again he found himself the storm. Before them, girls, their trunks seem not to break, dragged to the wither bracken, shattering the sun's turn, click, loaded. You must have seen them across the lines. And this is the hillwife again. Hillwife, weeping, weeping for the lost, yet they are beheld here because cleaved eye opens in the light the matrix gendered. And I'm just, I'm going to end with um, a couple little poems from Rooms and Their Heirs. This is called Fossil or Fossil. It's just that after the earth has no more tears, you stumble across this rough-edged surface broken, clean affluency, thinking of salt. And maybe if you listen, you pick up something embedded or memorize, or sometimes just glint. And this is sprouting grass moon, because that's what this moon is, you know, this like month. The moon is called the sprouting grass moon. Sometimes just opening a window to hear the air moving is enough, not even wind. Sometimes after making love to lie very still and listen for the slightest shift, the wildness retreating, the tongue coming so civilly to rest. Thank you.